1: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. How do we get people to do something they don't quite want to do that we really need them to do for the public interest without forcing them to do it? And it's a problem everyone around the world right now is trying to solve. How do we get vaccination rates up to herd immunity levels. When right now, in places like Britain and America, they've gotten up to 50 to 60%, but they can't get any higher. And that's a real problem, because right now the Delta variant is ripping through those unvaccinated people. We have a pandemic of the unvaccinated on our hands in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's a problem, luckily, that we don't face immediately here in New Zealand, but we could If we too struggle to get over that 50 to 60% threshold, I want to look at how we can use nudge theory, behavioural science, and from my point of view, as as someone who's interested in economics, behavioural economics, to try and solve this problem, because we've done this before in New Zealand, and sometimes quite successfully. The best example is KiwiSaver, where... Unlike in Australia, where they have compulsory superannuation, which requires a big, hefty government subsidy, which turns out delivers enormous amounts of taxpayer cash to very rich people who get paid a subsidy for every dollar they save. In New Zealand, we chose to do it differently. We sort of made it accidentally on purpose, a saving scheme that you you were put into when you joined a new employer and you could opt out of, so it didn't feel like it was compulsory, But before you knew it, everyone had a KiwiSaver scheme, and we'd saved an awful lot of money, almost by accident. And that's the best type of nudge. Rather than a big stick or a really big carrot, we just use a little nudge. I asked Chris Hipkins, who's the minister in charge of our COVID-19 response, how the government was using these little nudges to get our vaccination rates up from 50 to 60% to that 80 90% herd immunity level.
2: Well, I think we will nudge well above that 60% plateau that other countries have been, you know, have found themselves hitting based on what we know from New Zealanders, a well-structured vaccination campaign hitting the right places at the right time, the right people at the right time, uh, can deliver good results. If you look at some of our Pacific countries that we've been working with, Cook Islands, Tokelau, Nui, very, very high vaccination uptake there. Uh, And I expect that we'll see some good, high numbers here in New Zealand. Having said that, uh, we always look at what more we can do in that regard. So to your broader question around nudge uh, type approaches, you'll see that we're using that a bit more with the QR code scanning, for example, the sort of positive reinforcement around the use of that. Um, Some of the summer campaign, the Make Summer Unstoppable campaign, was focused a bit more on that kind of peer pressure, social pressure for people to be doing the right thing. I think we wouldn't be talking about uh, any kind of monetary incentives, but I think that the, The ability to build events around vaccination, for example, is certainly something that we'll keep in the toolkit. In fact, we've got our first big event happening next weekend to pilot some of the methodology around how we would do that. Uh, Recognising that that will just be a vaccination event, but... Once we've got the methods around doing the vaccination part of that really nailed down, then the potential to add other things to that uh, in order to build that kind of environment where people will be encouraged to come forward, those sorts of possibilities open up. So I'm aware of other countries that have built you know, social events around a vaccination event, and there's a potential for us to think about that in New Zealand.
1: So there's Chris Hipkins. He's reasonably positive that we can get to that 80 percent mark, that New Zealand is a little bit different to the rest of the world. but I'm somewhat skeptical particularly around the Maori and Pacifica community. As you'll find out later in this episode, I speak to Dr. Browardy McCree who who is right at the front line trying to make sure that Maori and Pacifica communities up and down the country are getting vaccinated because right now we've got a problem. The vaccination program hasn't prioritised Māori and Pacifica, and Māori and Pacifica vaccination rates are significantly lower from the rest of the country. Not as well connected to GPs, all of the official mechanics of a DHB, um, problems with vaccination programs in the past. And this is a real threat for New Zealand if we cannot get over that 50 to 60% mark and make sure that Māori and Pacifica communities, which are the most vulnerable, aren't stuck in that no-man's land, like all of those people in Britain and America are right now, and get torn to shreds by a horrible Delta or Lambda or Epsilon outbreak. This is the community that is the most vulnerable. So I asked Chris Hipkins, what is the government doing with its nudge theory to try and bring in and... Get those vaccination rates up for Māori and Pacifica.
2: One of my concerns, I guess, is that uh, Māori and Pacifica people are, have been underrepresented as a proportion of the population in the groups that we've been targeting so far. So, our health workforce, for example, our over 65s, they actually make up a smaller share of those population groups uh, than they do as the population as a whole. So, Māori and Pacifica populations are younger, younger than the average of the whole population. And so, uh, those numbers have been lower they're still lower than I'm comfortable with. So we need to get those vaccination rates up. A lot of work is happening with Māori and Pacifica health providers. Um, we've worked really hard on building up the, the workforce of Māori and Pacific uh, vaccinators as well. Uh, if you look at our first big uh, event that's happening next weekend, it's targeted at an area where we know uh, we'll, we'll capture a high degree of Māori and Pacific people. Because if we can make that work, then that may well be part of the answer to getting those rates up higher.
1: That's Chris Hipkins, but it's not going to be quite as easy as that. Later in the episode, we'll talk to Associate Professor Helen Petousis harris who has also looked in depth at the sorts of things we need to do, those little nudges, to get us over the line. That's this week in When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey on The Spin-Off Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Well, first up, I'd like to welcome Dr Rawiri McCree-Jansen, who is the clinical director of the National Order Coalition, here to talk about what's going on at the front line. Firstly, Dr Rawiri, could you tell us where you are? Uh, I've come to the office
3: uh, for the National Hauora Coalition, should just mention I'm clinical director for the National Hauora Coalition, and so we're a primary health organisation. We look after 55 clinics across five different district health board areas, 235,000 patients. And then I also work as a GP, so just a regular GP in clinic, prescribing amoxel, you know, looking after patients
1: and families and attending to their concerns. So tell us, um, what do you think of the current vaccination plan and how well it's going for Māori and Pacifica in particular?
3: So I'm, I'm a critic of it, and I like to be a critical friend. I think we're, we have intention to get a really good vaccination programme for Aotearoa, for New Zealand. I'm specifically interested in how we do that for Māori families and Māori communities. And so in that, I noticed that um, Cabinet decided not to um, prioritise the Indigenous population. And we, you know put up some really good, compelling information, in my view, that said uh, the Māori community and the Pacific community are the most vulnerable communities in New Zealand. I think it's consistent with the international evidence around um, prioritising the Indigenous population, which Australia does, which Canada does, which the federal government in the United States of America has done. I think we should be doing it, and we're not, so that's problematic. I think that uh, there's a big drive to, to kind of reach the breadth and width of New Zealand, but actually um, we've really got to focus on getting Māori population and, and Pacific communities vaccinated because the evidence is really clear that the impact for Māori and Pacific communities would be catastrophic. So how could the government
1: have prioritised the Māori and Pacific communities?
3: Oh Well, um, you know, we put up some advice to the government that um, Māori Civic should be have an age adjuster effectively in the vaccination program rollout and it came from some um, international peer-reviewed um, you know evidence from Tapunaha matatini the the um, you know sort of scientists who were looking at it michael planck and uh, sean Hendy, you know sort of names that we're quite used to they're, they're really scientists advising the program. Um, what it really shows is that a Māori man with no comorbidities at age 49 has the same risk as a Pākehā man with no co- comorbidities at age 70. It's an incredible gap, and we need that evidence to guide our vaccination programme. Uh, we used evidence and we were, we were led by the science in terms of how we responded to the pandemic throughout the COVID outbreaks, We
1: should be led by the science as we go into the vaccination programme. So uh, how would you design a a vaccination programme to really ensure that everyone had access to the vaccines, it was easily able to be administered, where you took account of different communities, different parts of the country, different um, household types, so that we had the highest possible vaccination rates? You know, when we
3: started this, we looked. it looked like we might have five different vaccines. And then at the beginning of this year, we got some information that said, actually, it's going to be Pfizer all the way. Pfizer from here to as far as you can see, which is a beautiful thing until you reach a Delta variant. And our, I think our sense of urgency around this is prompted by what's happening around the world with variants, with Delta or Lambda you know, super transmissible, and so th- there's no experts that I know of who say we're not going to have another outbreak. I think everybody agrees that it's likely we're going to have further outbreaks, and that outbreak is going to be a super transmissible variant. So, you know, you know, I love the idea of Pfizer all the way, but we can't get enough Pfizer. So I think we've got to sort of face that reality and say we need to get the Janssen vaccine approved and into the country as soon as we can. Actually, we should probably do the same with AstraZeneca because it will give us more vaccines. And then, I mean, it gets complicated, but we have to think about which populations would use the AstraZeneca for, which ones would we use the Janssen for. The Janssen one is way less complicated, doesn't have to have super cold fridges, it's a one-dose vaccine, all of that stuff. Um, Internationally, we can see that the mix and match approach of one dose of AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer, that's a really good immunological response. And so that should be part of our total programme. Um, then I think the other obvious things is how do we um, inspire, engage, enable Māori and Pacific communities to get the vaccination done? At the moment, we're going to send out some text messages and emails which are really bloody complicated and difficult to understand and what's the call to action, what do I have to do? I have to go somewhere else and log in and do some other stuff? Actually, um, I've seen Māori providers do it really well and they have a simple message that says, come on in, we'll vaccinate you. You know, no appointment necessary. Come in, we'll vaccinate. And so I think we've got to sort of bust through some of these quite um, ordinary ways of doing things, and we've got to get into a much more... a programme which is really focused on understanding the
1: communities that we intend to serve and deliver it for them. Because at the moment, my understanding of the vaccination programme is that people, depending on which group they are in, will apply for an appointment with their GP, get the appointment go in, get the jab, go away, come back for another appointment, get a second jab and go away. But it seems to me that's missing... A, that's quite complicated, as you say. You need the text messages and you need to have the appointments set up and access to the internet and everything needs to work. But it also assumes that everyone has their own GP, is comfortable going to their own GP, has a car or public transport to get to their own GP can get time off work to go to their own GP and do all this sort of stuff. I wonder whether this basic way of doing the vaccination programme really works for everyone and whether some of the more mass vaccination ideas, um, basically just rock on up and we'll vaccinate you, uh, whether that's more appropriate. Yeah, so there'll be a number of features and we've
3: got to have a, a quite a varied Um, set of approaches. Like, one approach won't work for everybody. That's clear. One size fits all? Hell no. But don't do that. Um, And so if you've had experience and a history with the healthcare system in which you don't trust that so much, or you always get harassed for paying a bill, or your name gets mispronounced, or you know, it's hard to get there, or, you know, there's just there's so many barriers that we want to break through. So we need to have um, primary care being part of the vaccination rollout, yes. We need to have mass vaccination centres, yes. We need to have um, events, yes. Um, We need to really support Māori providers and Pacific providers to be really big part of the programme, yes. Um, And through all of that, we've still got to really work on the communications. How do you engage with and inspire, um, you know, the breadth and depth of Māoridom to go hell yeah, I'm in. Um, And make it easy. At every stage, we want to make the right thing to do the easiest thing to do. It's not going to be a single king hit. We need to have... TV and radio and newsprint and messaging, uh, social media that inspires this population to get engaged. And and that'll be different for each of those populations when we think about it. You know, rural communities will be different to urban communities, of course. Um, Older people will be different to younger people, of course. Um, Students that we're going to do through a a vaccination programme in the schools as we start to go down into the younger age groups, of course that'll be different.
1: We do have a... Uh, A bit of history, I suppose, with the various vaccination programs. In particular, just recently, we've had a report into the Plunkett vaccination program, which had some, what, you know, some people might see as sensible ideas of, um, you know, um, exchanges of, you know, nappies and cash or vouchers for vaccinations. But tell us um, what actually happened there. Well, the, the study that you're referring to, there's an
3: evaluation of a program and it was an outreach immunisation service. And the provider of that service was um, Plunkett. And I'm, I'm a critic of Plunkett and not a critical friend, I'm just a critic. Um, I'm really clear that The organisation Plunkett was established by Truby King, white supremacist, and just to cut to the chase, I'd say we can't change the fact of our history that a white supremacist established that organisation and was part of our health services, but we can sure as hell be responsible for making sure it's not part of our future. And the study that you're talking about showed that that particular provider had uh, workers who were not well received by the population that they were supposed to be serving. They experienced racism in the judgment and attitudes that were associated with the outreach immunisation service. The, the study was really powerful because it told me that, it told us both, I think, that the community is up for it to, to get vaccinated, but there is a number of obstacles to them getting the vaccination. And it might be um, the provider... The primary care provider, the GP clinic, or the receptionist at the GP clinic, or the fact they've got a bill there, or the difficulty in getting organised to get there—you know, I mean, any number of ones—life gets in the way for a lot of people, and and for some of them there are other challenges, including you know financial barriers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know, having a voucher to give or some nappies to give to support people is a beautiful thing in the hands of a good provider. But in the hands of a provider who is received as being part of the racist system, it doesn't work. No surprise to me in that. Uh, I'm not against the idea of having vouchers and nappies and supporting families. I think that's, that's beautiful. But we do need to hold these providers to account to do a good job for the community that they serve.
1: Uh, overseas, there's been all sorts of um, fun things tried in some places. In America, you get a free gun if, if you get vaccinated. <laughs> I'm not suggesting we do anything like that here. But um, can you think of any particular technique or tool or um, event that would work to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. I know that there has been, in Porirua, a Pacific Island church was the venue for a, a mass vaccination. I think 1,500 people turned up and expected a 1,000. What, what, what do you think is, is the best way to have a crack at this? Yes, I like the idea of mass events, but no, I don't like the idea of creating a barrier
3: to getting it done because you have to go onto a certain site and book and all of that complexity. The reality is for lots of families and maybe especially true for Māori and Pacific, if we've got a mass event and the invitation is rock on up and we'll get you sorted, um, I think that's more compelling than the idea that you have to go in and you have to book. And so, you know, there are some problems with the Monaco mass event because you have to go through booking Challenges to get involved on that day. Actually, they're going to be better off if they get over themselves and say, "You can book if you want to, but if you just rock on up, we're going to look after you." There's a, it's just a different message. It's going to reach further. We see that from um, Pacific churches that the event that you're talking about, um, just reaching out and informing people, you know, come along on this day. That's that's pretty powerful, especially if it's run by an organisation that's trusted in your community. Uh, we see that in communities in rural New Zealand, Māori communities where they are engaged and informed and in charge of doing the invites and setting it up and, and how it's going to roll on that day. They have much better penetration into the community than when it's done by you know external agencies. Having said that, I still accept that there's going to be a place for mass vaccination centres or locality vaccination centres or pop-up vaccinations. All of these channels are important. Um, then I think how we language it and how we invite people will ought to change as we move into different communities. And communities will have preferences. Families will have preferences.
1: Let's reach out and understand that and then deliver to that. Overseas, a lot of countries are getting to that 50%, 60% at best level and then they sort of plateau out and they're not getting anywhere near the 80% plus you need for what they call herd immunity.
3: Success looks like 90% of our eligible population getting vaccinated, and I think that's achievable. I know Ashley's talking about it. I've been talking about it for a while. I think we've got evidence that vaccination is that acceptable. And so the evidence for me comes from um, our Childhood Immunisation Programme and when it's done deliberately and relentlessly and done with love and respect to the community, we see providers and we see um, districts that can achieve 90 and 95% of children vaccinated. And I know from um, working with Māori provider clinics, we've achieved 95% of childhood immunisations done on time. So, you know, honestly, I think evidence is clear that the acceptability of vaccines is surging and we've got to do a good job of getting it available and removing all barriers so that um, communities can access the service. you know, the surveys when they first started looking at vaccine acceptability here in New Zealand, they were done at a time when we had no COVID travelling. There was no COVID in our community, you know, and we had no vaccine in the country. And something like 65% of people said, hell yeah, I'm in. So we're coming off a really high base. From that 65%, imagine that there's 10 or 20% of people who go, well, I just want to know a little bit more. I just want to understand what it means for me with my health condition. Um, I'm really interested to see how it goes with people when they get stuck. Okay, all of that happens, and guess what? Everybody start to go, well, my uncle and auntie, they got done. My, my grandma and my grandpa, they got done. Or my cousin, we, we start to have lived experience of, actually, this vaccine's Okay. And then lots of people have had opportunity to talk to their nurse or their GP or their specialist and say, is it okay for me? And so all of that stuff, you know, we should be really confident that we can get to 80 percent, 85 percent with some ordinary kind of really good programs. And then on top of that, well, let's put in some extra effort and really get there and really deliver to our community a great result, a great vaccination program of 90
1: percent vaccinated. Let's go. So just in, in summary, what do you think the government and the DHBs and everyone, what we could do to get to that 90% level if we wanted to pull all the levers and we were, you know, seeing it as a a real urgent get it done now? Okay. How long have we got? You Are you interrogating <laughs> me for an
3: hour? Come on. Okay. There's, there's just so much that we could do. I think we've got to, you know, be critical of our... Program this far and um, amend it, adjust it, uh, tailor it. We need to be deliberate and determined about getting it to communities that are most at risk. And so we might just need to pause our prioritisation, our sequencing schedule and go, actually, we need to really pay attention to these areas where we haven't got it going so well. And that's clearly Māori and Pacific communities right now. And redouble our efforts and our resourcing of community responses and community programs. Um, we need to support communities to be able to have communication programs and plans and strategies for their people. We need to, I think, provide some extra communication and information out there through all channels that we've got access to, social media, mainstream media, um, You know, TV, Māori radio. Does all of those things need to be part of it? I think I've got this idea. What we really need is a program called a thousand Māori communities. Imagine that there's one thousand Māori communities, and they all get resourced and supported to deliver to their community. And so that might be, you know, we're in Auckland, so you think there's Māori community in Papatoetoe or Manurewa, and maybe Manurewa was too big, and there's two or three Māori communities there. And then there's in the far north, and then there's the east coast, and Māori communities everywhere are being supported to be part of the vaccination programme that really aligns with what we see in terms of the best outcomes for Māori communities when Māori communities are engaged and supported and resourced to be part of the vaccination programme. So I'd love to see something that just really elevated our attention and resourcing of 1,000 Māori
1: communities getting busy and vaccinating. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Next up, we speak to Associate Professor Helen Petousas-Harris, from Auckland University, who is right in the middle of helping to plan the vaccination programme. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024.
0: We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 2025-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a a surge in migrants which is adding demand to the housing market and I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on.
1: Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other Kiwibank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses.
2: Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tāmaki Makaurau, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today.
0: Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment?
1: Well, welcome into Associate Professor Helen Patousis-Harris, who is right in the guts of our vaccination programme, watching it very closely, advising all sorts of people, and part of their story globally. Helen, welcome into When the Facts Change. Ah, kia ora. Could you tell us, what is the big challenge we have in front of us in terms of getting our population from that 50 to 60%, which it seems a lot of people are able to get to, up? to, you know, closer to herd immunity.
0: You know, I think we're starting in a better place than a lot of other uh, places at the moment. Looking at the, the trends and in people's intentions to get vaccinated, um, I think we've got to about 80%. So, so that's, I mean, I think that's a good start. It doesn't, even if you intend to, though, it doesn't mean you actually get around to doing it. So I think we've got to look at the reasons for why people might not get vaccinated. And those, that's a pretty long list and it's quite complicated.
1: Tell us what you think are the the main blockages at the moment that we could use various techniques, maybe nudges, to get us over the line.
0: Um, Okay, so I guess, first of all, there is life and people are very busy. They've got, perhaps they've got kids, they've got work, they've got houses, they've got all sorts of things going on. So it can be... Um, I guess, difficult to make that time, particularly when you've got you perhaps multiple people to organise. Another is, is actually accessing services. So sometimes that could be because you have trouble with transport. The services could be quite remote. So not everybody lives in, in a major city and it could be a long way to go, a long travel time. Um, the services might not be particularly friendly to to, the, to to people, they might um, find that a barrier as well. There's not really seeing the need. So perhaps uh, you, you don't feel that this, in this case, we're talking about COVID, that that's something that really affects you so much. So you don't really, not going to really prioritise that.
1: Because that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, ha- how do you get people to do something which is at least initially slightly painful and very, very marginally, a little bit risky, which is good for you personally, although not in an obvious way and really good for society as a whole. How how do you get people to do that without, you know, forcing them to?
0: I think if that's the issue, that's probably not the hardest thing to deal with. So that's where you can bring in some um, really well sort of targeted information and in education. And I guess it's really, I think, um, there's there's not a one size well, actually, one size fits almost nobody. Um, and I think this is one of the problems, is that we we have to be really multifaceted in how we sort of attack this. Uh, people are all very different. Like I said, I've just mentioned um, some of the key reasons. The other one is not being perhaps confident about the vaccine. Um, uh, probably, I mean, we, we know some people are completely influenced by misinformation, and I think that's another issue in itself. But with all of those components... There's a, a, you know, I guess some targeted education and information can take you a long way. Reminders, people can actually respond quite good to a decent tech, make it easy, get a text message, push a couple of buttons on your phone and you can... But we, I think we need to listen very carefully to, to the communities um, and to those people, those local providers to those communities because they know their people, they know what, what their issues are and know what's needed to reach them.
1: And what have been the most successful techniques or tools, not just here but overseas, that um, have nudged people in the right direction?
0: Uh, I think all of the things that perhaps we've ever heard of have worked in some settings. So there's probably examples of uh, – for example, people talk about the, the making things mandatory um, – that can work in some settings. Uh, it doesn't make a blind bit of difference in other settings. In fact, it can be detrimental and, and affect those who you're actually trying to protect. There, there are, um, I guess, incentivizations where you provide people a perhaps a, a little financial incentive or some sort of a gift that can be effective in some settings. And there's, um, I guess, there's the outreach where, where people provide a service that actually goes to people's um, homes and provides a service there. So there's all of these different um, approaches that can be effective if if they're overcoming um, the barrier that, that those people or those communities are actually facing.
1: In the next week or so, we're going to have a, a test run, if you like, of a mass event. You know, the... Um the event, the meeting up with family and friends, you know, watching a great band is often a a great way to get people along and in a way that they want to. Everyone jumps in the car and goes to this one place. Sounds like a fun thing. How how important do you think these mass events will be in the process? I
0: I suspect that they can be a really good idea because a lot of things are community-driven and we know from experience, if we if we sort of look back at where we've done very well here in New Zealand, with the mass vaccination campaign, um, that was the the that meningococcal vaccination campaign. The communities that we wanted to reach the most were were the Pacific communities and the and and the Māori communities. And getting into those, for example, in Pacifica, getting into the churches and into those, you know, the, the really close communities was enormously successful, and achieved a uh, really high uptake, which was then maintained for years.
1: Uh, one of the techniques that have been used for vaccination campaigns overseas is sanctions. In Australia, for example, if you're a, a beneficiary, if you haven't vaccinated your kids, you can lose your benefit. Uh, what's your view on these, that sort of sanction um, idea or Using a stick rather than a carrot.
0: I think in the case of Australia, it was completely unnecessary. And what they've ended up doing potentially is the people who they're affecting, who aren't getting their benefits, weren't actually potentially not accessing these services because of because they were uh, vaccine hesitant. It was it was actually overcoming a lot of these other barriers, so they've actually disadvantaged them more. And the people who were. Wealthier and it could make an. It were actually making an active choice not to to vaccinate. Weren't really affected at all by it. So I don't think, and I don't think there's evidence to show that that's been particularly effective. Their their coverage rate wasn't too bad, and it was already on a trajectory upwards. So I don't think it's necessary. I don't think you'd entertain it um, unless it was absolutely dire. But. That's not to say you might not want to look at situations um, of employment in certain situations. Uh, you might want to uh, I guess in a way mandate that for example, people caring for you know people in aged care for example, where it's going to be really important.
1: Just looking at the issue of incentives, um, the, the libertarian economist in me who's long, dead, but anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> It says you can solve any problem with a chunk of money, a big, you know, I'll pay you this for you to do this for me. Uh, but actually, when you look at behavioral economics, behavioral finance, um, behavioral psychology, people have lots of different motivations for doing lots of different things. And it strikes me that um, vaccination is one of those things where, Personal interest is not the only motivation or personal safety or even familial safety or, or health might, might not be the only thing that matters to you. It could be wider things. How do you think we could use our policies and our tools to appeal to that you know, less personalized, less, you know, it's all about me, me, me?
0: Yeah, there, there there is a lot of me 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 in it, and um, I think that, I think it's a bit of both because I think it does need a bit of money thrown at it. Um, it's simply because I mean I think we've depleted we've depleted those services to a point where um, it's very difficult for them to, to to reach the people and provide the services. So um, you've got to have that right, and we know that that getting that right years ago. Uh, was what got us to the dizzying heights of something like 94% uptake.
1: So what in, what in particular was changed to get to that 94% to rebuild some of those that fabric?
0: A whole lot of things. were set targets uh, and, and people had to report on targets. So that's always a good way to get people to think about <laughs> think about things. And it was a real focus on supporting primary healthcare who deliver most of the vaccines. There was a whole lot of sort of strategies that were put in place that really focused, I guess, ultimately on providing really good services. And, and that's over time what got us there. And then we... Started, they started to be eroded, and we started taking that for granted. And we saw this take a, a downward turn. So, so, throwing money at it. When, when I say that, I mean we need to get some uh, some more resources back into those services and really, really support them because they're the kind of backbone of the entire entire program. So that's, I think, where where money can go.
1: Now, one of the interesting pieces of research that's been done over the last 6-12 months is using effectively A-B testing of various messages with text messages to um, in, get the best possible uh, you know, response from people. Do you think enough of that sort of uh, quite gritty, grainy, you know, let's check all of these messages and make sure they hit the mark, that sort of research and work's being done?
0: Um, probably some. But I think, um, I, I don't know, personally, I'm not seeing, seeing enough flowing through. I mean, we absolutely do need to uh, be crafting these messages. A lot goes behind a very short message. And that snappy little soundbite is really going to hit the mark with a subgroup of people. And you're going to need lots and lots and lots of other snappy little soundbites, <laughs> if you like, and also modes of delivery, platforms to deliver all of that messaging.
1: So just to finalise and to summarise, we're on the verge of this big ramp up in the vaccination programme. It's going to be crucial over the next six months to get those numbers up as high as possible. What more could the government, community groups, DHBs, all of the players here, what more could they do to make sure we get the best possible uh, result?
0: It, It has to be easy to access, I think there's some frustration in the primary care arena who in the past really had the burden of delivering vaccines to the communities and those mass clinics I think are likely to be helpful too. So so these are all all things that are going to to reach different different groups of people and also the um the outreach services but I think it is really needs to be um, community-driven and that people need to have the flexibility and the agility to be able to meet the needs of their own communities. And I'm not sure if they're being supported enough to, to do that um, because there's an enormous goodwill and uh, going in at the front lines. I've just got to, to keep supporting them to deliver that and um, ask them, you know, give them what they need to do that.
1: Community immunity. Thank you very much to Associate Professor Helen Patousas-Harris from Auckland University. You're welcome. When the Facts, Changes was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.
2: Kia ora e te he butler here, podcast manager at the Spin-Off.